Hi, this is James Marchant, and you're listening to Catholic vs. Catholic. Just tell the listeners, if you would please, a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you believe, and how you came to believe it. Well, James Marchant, I've been a Montreal boy, grew up in um, Benny Farms and uh, West Island, NDG, Westmount, and uh, was part of a family, uh, my mother in particular, Anglican, and uh, had trouble in school. And from there, I was um, forced to find myself a job, and I got working and uh, got my BCom. I started my BCom at night, finished it during the day, got my MBA at night at Concordia, and got into the business world, got married to Marie-Matt Gendron. And for practical reasons, no other other reason but practical reasons, I decided to uh, convert to Catholicism so that if we had a family, we could all grow in the same religion. So that turned out to be quite providential, as you'll hear my story. I um, got to work, worked my way up through the ranks, started from the bottom of the totem pole right up to uh, becoming vice president human resources at Canron, then vice president industrial relations at uh, Nortel, and vice president human resources at Avnor, and then CMAC, and then went on to uh, form my own business. But this work got the best of me, and um, eventually I burned out, and it was a very, uh, very difficult time for me and my family as well. And from there, we, um, I recovered slowly but surely, started my own little business, and started taking on contracts with major corporations, which was very, very successful for me. And at the same time, started to um, accept invitations to uh, participate in the local professional business person uh, prayer group here in Montreal and uh, started on my road of uh, faith, my road to real life, uh, slowly but surely, which took me to um, make the confession of my life at at, uh, St. Benoit du Lac when I was, uh, oh my God, 62 years of age. And that was a huge uh, moment for me in my life where I, I learned just how much God loved me, how much God wanted me and as, as part of his story. And the, uh, the priest that handled the confession was um, curiously had in his cassock a, an article that Pope Benedict had written or that had written for him where Anglican priests and, and bishops were being accepted into the into into Catholicism. And he was very keen on um, the whole ecumenical movement. From there, I went in my own community, cutting a long story short, got very involved in the ecumenical movement and bringing all of the churches together uh, for the Good Friday walk, the Marche du Pardon, the... Uh, ecumenical celebration at St. Lambert during uh, St. Lambert uh, fight. And um, I also got very involved in my parish. And I have really now, at this particular point in time, totally uh, dedicated my life to God's will, trying to understand what God wants out of me and uh, how I can help. And uh, I would say the thing that's really important to me now is that, as John, John the Baptist says, I have to diminish so that Jesus can grow in my life. And uh, 
the paradox is that the more and more and more that you that I uh, give of myself and center myself around God's will and God's will for me in my life and decenter myself from my own personal needs and my own personal wishes and from taking things personally, I have found a certain peace of heart, a peace of mind that I never before thought possible. Can you talk about your early childhood experiences with religion and maybe a little bit of biographical information, early childhood memories and family and connections and religion? So my father, Wilfred, was a um, Second World War veteran and he met his love, the love of his life, my mother, Patricia, in England. Uh, my father got moved back to uh, Montreal because he, he had a, an accident during the war. And my mother had to come by herself to Montreal uh, via boat and train. And she arrived in 1945 pregnant for me. My parents started from nothing and worked their way gradually up to uh, being able to take care of all of us, but it was never easy. My mother is a firm believer and always was involved in uh, the Anglican Church, wherever we happened to be, and uh, got me enrolled in the choir. Uh, the one that I that impacted my life the most was the St. Matthias Boys Choir in, Saint, in Westmount, uh, Quebec. So much so that at a certain point in time in my life, I even wanted to be a uh, an Anglican minister. <laughs> but slowly but surely, as I started having trouble going through school and everything else, I decided to uh, concentrate on working and uh, making my way through through life and found a, a significant other and went on with that. I have uh, two sisters who are uh, one's living in Montreal, the other one's living in uh, Toronto. They're believers as well. And uh, I had my brother, Charles, who died several years ago from cancer. And I had another brother, Peter, who we never knew because he died from pneumonia. God has always been part of my life, but never to the extent that it is today. It, uh, it was He was always there, and it was always something important to me. But as I got caught up in um, proving myself in the business world, let me just say that it became more and more difficult to um, understand and appreciate, in particular, the Beatitudes, to decode the Beatitudes, to understand the Beatitudes. When you're brought up in, a, in the business world today, which is performance, 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 perception, perception, perception of yourself, it's very hard to uh, decode what blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, means. Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What does it mean? So on and so forth. And as I went down my uh, my road of faith, my road to the newfound life, I started to realize that I had to um, really detach myself from the material things in life, detach myself from the business of performance and performance and material and uh, achieving and so that you 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 could be somebody important it uh, got the best of me and unfortunately i had to go through that that phase where i uh, hit rock bottom in terms of my uh, health and moral stability but um, that was the beginning of of something very special i didn't hear you mention too much about your father's faith life can you just touch briefly on your father and what he believed and maybe the uh, ups and downs of his faith life if you had one 
My father was um, somebody who came up through the school of hard knocks, had a very tough life, and learned how to survive. And uh, when he saw me taking this turn in my life that I took in the last few years before he passed away, I think it troubled him quite a bit. But uh, ironically, God works in mysterious ways because I was with him to the end, and we lived something very, very special together just before he passed away. So I like to believe that God was there for him too, um, but I, I I can't say that uh, that I ever connected with him on that on that level. Can you talk a little bit about your? prayer life and how it nourishes and nurtures that flame of faith? Because I think your faith is on fire now. It's not just an ember or a spark. It's a full flame, right? So what is the relationship between maintaining the flame of faith and building your faith and the prayer and sacraments that you engage in as a Catholic? So that's an excellent question, David. Just super. Every morning, very early in the morning, I get up and I have a routine that I go through. And it starts with a little moment of silence in my little sanctuary here at home where I have um, always have a candle burning and I have um, Virgin Mary's uh, statue with me and also the cross of Jesus Christ. And then I go through preparing the mass for today. So I, I go through the, the meditations in the... Magnificat, English and French, Parole et Vie from France, and Le, Le Prion. And I go through all of this, and I really take my time to understand it. I've, I've actually added something else to this, where when I get to the psalm, I, um, I found some, some books on the psalms that help me integrate the psalms with the readings for today, the, uh, the gospel for today, and it really helps me tremendously. And then uh, there's always three or four meditation settings that um, I can read and uh, meditate on. Then I get on with my day. I may do um, the rosary. I always go to Mass once a day somewhere in my community. And in the evening before going to bed, I do the closing prayers. Plus, I... Um, uh, I don't know how to say this in English, but I do the Divine Misericorde, Divine Mercy thing. And what is fascinating about this, what's been going on with me internally over the last several years, is that now I've got, I've become almost like dependent on this. I can't get enough of it. My kids and even my wife look at me and they just, they, they joke about me. You should have been a priest, Dad, you know. I wouldn't trade where I'm at right now with anybody. It's just my own little voyage, and um, it's um, really very profound. And the more and more and more I get into it, the less and less importance I have as a person, less and less things I take personally. And somebody like myself, who's very high profile in the community, there's always people that uh, just don't appreciate me or don't act like the way I think and stuff like that. And I... And I few years ago, had the bad habit of taking these things personally. Now it's, you know, I guess quietly get into prayer and I just say, okay, fine. This, I'm leaving this one with you, God and Jesus Christ. Just let me ride it out. I want to talk about something that's a little bit delicate 
a lot of people are angry with this whole sex scandal thing in the church. How do you defend the holiness of Holy Mother Church? Because I believe firmly that the church is one holy and Catholic and apostolic. So how do you defend the holiness of the Holy Roman Catholic Church today? Well, that is an excellent question. And I've just read a meditation by Pope Francis. And um, he cited St. Paul in Ephesians. I think it was Ephesians, eh? where uh, St. Paul said, the church is sanctified by Jesus Christ and is therefore holy. Because priests are sinners, because bishops are sinners, because me, the Pope, is a sinner, doesn't change the fact that the church is still holy. And I get that. I get that. Okay. Now, I have my own views as to why we're in this mess, but um, I, I strongly believe that the sanctity of the church is something that is just not negotiable. Can you share your views on sexual sin and chastity? And we are called, we're all called to holiness. We're all called to chastity. Even married people are called to chastity. Can you give your perspective on that and its relationship with the crisis in the church? Well, I am uh, a big believer that chastity is important for priests, for, for other religious people like nuns and uh, monks and stuff like that. And I um, firmly believe that um, a huge majority of them have been very faithful to their their vows. And what, um, this is just my hypothesis now, because I don't know if there's any, if there's been any research here at all. But when I look back in the history of the United States, when I look back into the problems in Massachusetts and Pennsylvania, Ireland, Chile, all around. My sense is that a number of people get involved in religious vocations as a profession, not as a calling. And as a result, they get easily knocked off track. And I believe that one of my callings is to support and serve people in religious vocations to the best of my ability, to make sure that uh, that they know they can count on me to help them out, because I believe they're absolutely critical to the, the life and vibrance of the church going forward. Absolutely critical. And that um, this catastrophe that we're living through right now will eventually work itself out. There's hope. And maybe a lot of good will come out of it. Right now, it's um, it's devastating to see how this thing is turning around on us. But I firmly believe that um, over time, we may have to hit rock bottom before we start climbing up again. But uh, I think things are going to work themselves out on a long-term basis. Mm. I, I make a very strong distinction between someone who has a sickness like alcoholism or pedophilia or whatever the case may be, but who is striving to fight against it, and someone who's unrepentant, like an unrepentant homosexual, for example, that happens to be a priest or a bishop. These people know what Christ teaches, and still they rebel. So they are, I think, what Christ would have called wolves in sheep's clothing. Are there many of these wolves in sheep's clothing in the hierarchy in the church or even in the pews of the church? Do you think that there are many? Is it a large percentage or is it a very, very small percentage of people that know what the church teaches 
but they prefer their sin, and so they're in a constant state of rebellion against their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What is the proportion, roughly, would you say? I haven't got a clue. I don't know of any. I, I, I've, never, I've never experienced this. The world that I'm dealing in, this is just total love, dedication, commitment, people. It's, I've, I've been with people, I've been with priests, where they're in situations, really good, totally dedicated priests who are in tears because um, as children are going through the catechesis, the, the, uh, the parents don't want to leave the kids with the, with the priest for fear that uh, somehow the kid is going to be, I mean, I don't even want to go any further on this. I'm sure you can see where I'm going. And it's, and it's, um, it's incredible what's going on. I, I just, I just have not had that experience. I don't, when I, when I witness all of this stuff that's going on outside of my world, it's almost unbelievable because all of the priests, the religious people that I'm dealing with, and I'm dealing with them a lot now, more and more and more as I go on and with down this road that I'm on, and they're just nothing but totally dedicated, wonderful people that I don't know how I could live without. You've been lucky because I've met some Catholic priests that were not Catholic at all. They don't believe in the real presence of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist and this sort of thing. Well, I don't know if I've been lucky, David. I don't. I don't. I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. Don't agree with that. That I've been lucky. I would say you've been unlucky. There's not much laity that knows as many priests and as many religious people as James Marchant in this community. I can tell you that right now. I defy anybody to say they know more than I do. On the level that I know them, I mean, we're talking personal friends, big brothers, sisters, people that turn to me for help and everything else. These are dedicated, fantastic, wonderful people. So, I mean, if you've had an experience otherwise, well, to me, that's the exception. But lately, my life has called me into some of these uh, real gut-wrenching issues. Parents learning that their child is homosexual. And for some reason, I'm being asked, what do you think, James? How do we should, should we handle this? And my advice is always, understand, God is love. God is love. You got you to gotta seek to understand before trying to be understood. If that's your son, your daughter, a cousin, a nephew, somebody, don't try to change them. Just love them. Appreciate them. Be there for them. Let it work itself out. God is there with us on this. Who are we to judge? Now, on a cheerier note, you mentioned that you have a little home shrine and you have a few uh, objects of devotion. Can you just talk about some of your favorite saints, some of your favorite devotions, and uh, how that fits into your prayer life? I have a very strong devotion for the Virgin Mother, and I strongly believe that she was there with me for my first big confession. And then she, she helped me through it. It felt like she was there with me. And I, I'm with her every single day, almost every minute of my life. I get into situations now where I'm, where I'm confronted or I'm in difficult, conflictual situations that I end up in. And I, I tend to pause, walk away, and um, start quietly inside doing the rosary and just saying, James, cool it. And I can hear her telling me, like, just back off, buddy. The other one is St. Paul. Marie and I, my wife and I, did two pilgrimages. 
one to the Holy Land and Jordan with uh, Robert LaBelle, who's a uh, priest, composer, singer that we have here in Quebec. And then, then the year after that, Robert LaBelle invited us to join him on another pilgrimage through Greece and into Turkey, following the steps of St. Paul. And that is where I lived through something that was absolutely incredible. Just imagine this guy, you know, who got stopped on the road to Damascus, and it took him three years to figure out what the heck happened to him. And he's he's the top theologian in the world at the time, but on the wrong side of the street. And then he gets the message, and he starts out all by himself, and he's able to increase the circle, increase the circle, increase the circle, gets Greece, gets Turkey, and eventually the word is spread throughout the world. Now, when you go through the letters in the Bible, in the New Testament, and then you're actually in the places where he did this stuff, it becomes like, wow, this is absolutely incredible. The guy didn't have the technology that we have today. eh? Now, there's somebody else that I think needs mentioned that's alive and well today and is the hope of our church in terms of evangelization, and that is Robert Barron. He's had a huge impact on my life. Bishop Robert Barron from Los Angeles, California. Okay. And I've been on to him for several years now. And nobody knows about me and Robert Barron. Robert Barron doesn't know about it. My friends don't know about it because I live in a French community. But it's absolutely incredible what this man is able to do. And um, I really believe he is the future of uh, Catholicism in the world. Guys like him. He's using all of the technology that we have to spread the word in a very powerful, meaningful way that people can tune into today, that young people can connect with, and old guys like me can can get with, too. I mean, the guy is like, I can't get enough of him. He's fantastic. I've got his books. I've got his videos. I've got everything. It's tremendous. I want you to talk from your perspective, if you would, just a little bit about Christian unity. So within the Christian communities, what is it going to take to bring people in back into the ark of the Catholic Church? What have you seen that gives you hope that maybe uh, there's a way in? I know you talked about the Anglicans coming in. Some of the Anglicans had a way in. And there are always dialogues and there's ecumenism and all this sort of thing. I know you're involved in that and you're excited about that. So what have you seen that uh, sparks your interest or that makes you excited that there's a lot of hope for Christian unity in general moving forward from today? So Christian unity is critically uh, important. The goal for me is not to find ways to get people back into the Catholic Church, because I just don't think that I'm up to that cause. But I can tell you what what I've learned the hard way is that people uh, will be curious as to why uh, you've done certain things. So I'm going to talk about some things we're doing in our community that uh, perhaps create a certain awareness that there may be something here to look at. So we have a very, in St. Lambert, we have a very strong ecumenical organization. All of the Christian churches participate in. And we have um, a number of activities that we do together. Most importantly is we get together monthly and we just exchange with each other as to how we can help each other. There's uh, seven different Christian churches in our community. 
one of the major events we have, the, what we call the Good Friday Walk on, on Good Friday. When I got involved, it's a tradition that goes on every year. When I got involved, it wasn't doing well. There was about 20 some odd people on the walk. Within three years, it was over 200 and some odd people. And the newspapers started getting interested. Oh, what's going on here? We started getting interviews. And um, just this last year, we changed the format for doing it. And the local newspaper got involved. And the next thing we know, people were coming out from everywhere to go on this walk with us through the town of St. Lambert. And it was really quite something. And I was going around asking people I hadn't seen before, why are you here? He said, well, I think this is a good thing, Mr. Marchant. This is good. We should carry on with this. Let's do this more of this. I, I really like the way this is coming together. We have the um, ecumenical celebration, which we just had on Sunday, during St. Lambert days. On Sundays, it was at 1030 Sunday morning at St. Barnabas Anglican Church. And all of the the different churches were involved, and there were parishioners from all the different churches that came. And it was a, a huge success. There were a lot of people there. And after we had a little coffee and a get-together, and uh, the general sense was, we got to find a way to do more of this. You know, we're all in the same boat together. In 2014, Barry Mack, who was, and still is, the pastor at St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church in St. Lambert was on to this business about we got to start thinking about sponsoring Syrian or Iraqi family into St. Lambert before anybody started talking about it. And we all said, oh, come on, Barry, forget it. It's not going to work. We got enough problems to save our churches and our parishes. You know, we don't have time to get involved in something like this. Then at the end of 2014, all of these um, horrible stories and, 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 and television reports of people being martyred and children being, oh, my God, it's just terrible what was going on in Syria and Iraq. And in January of 2015, Barry comes back. He says, now, are you guys starting to get the message here? We can't sit back and do nothing. We got to do something here. So... I opened my mouth a little too fast, and I said, well, Barry, to do that, we've got to have a coordinator. We've got to have somebody to take care of this thing. He said, yeah, you're it, James. Do it. So we started getting organized. We got the infrastructure in place. We got a steering committee going. We got all our churches involved. Uh, every church and community, schools, willing to contribute. We set the whole thing up in a number of uh, two or three months. It was incredible. The momentum we were gaining before anything, was, anybody was even talking about it. And then I said, well, okay, we got the money, we got the infrastructure, we got the services, we're ready to go, we've got a plan. Couldn't get a family. Oh, how come? Can't get a family because the families that are already here tend to be sponsoring the ones that are not here yet. And we had a principle. We wanted to help families that didn't have any ties into Canada whatsoever. So I got in touch with the minister of Immigration, Diversity, and Inclusion in Quebec and with the office. And I said, I got a problem. And they said, oh, yeah, what's your problem? I said, I got everything going here, but I don't have a family. They said, tell you what, we're going to help you out here. We'll be, we're going to get back to you. That afternoon, they put me in touch with the Jesuits in Montreal, and they got in touch with me right away, and they said, Mr. Marchant, 
we think you're the answer to our prayers. He says, I've been looking for a parish or churches somewhere that want to join us to get families here. So within a few weeks, we had our family. We had them on the list. We had it approved. They were on their way here. And in November of 2015, Little Island is found on a beach. And there's an outpouring of support and people wanting to support and be part of this thing. But there was no organizations to give to. And um, you were part of that as well, David, when you helped us set up the website. But we started getting, because we were the only organization that had been set up for this purpose at the time, not the only one, but the only new one. And because there was a very powerful article written in the, in the La Presse newspaper by who, now the editor now of La Presse, Monsieur Cardinal, foundations and different groups started pouring money into our little group, Ecumen de Refuge. So we had to go for a second family and then a third family. And people were wanting to get involved with us in this process. There were so many people wanted to be part of this that I had to learn how to say, no, well, I'm sorry, all our needs are covered right now. But this is just one way, one little way that we're showing the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the power of being part of the solution through Jesus Christ. And uh, I have no other better way of convincing people that there might be something in this for them than by just doing it, making it happen, and uh, not too much blah, 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 blah. And that my neighbors and people all around the community here are saying, wow, James, this is incredible what's going on. Little things like, for example, uh, the second family that got here was a monoparental and um, in that single parent family was a little boy who was 12 years old at the time that he got here in May of 2016. And I got him um, playing hockey last year. St. Lambert Red Wings hockey team, the whole community just rallied around him. And the South Shore newspaper got a hold of it. And this thing went viral. People were saying, look at this kid from Alep, Syria, with dreams to be in the National Hockey League. People were coming from everywhere were saying, wow, James, this is incredible what you're doing here. And it's a way of talking to people, a way of getting people involved, right? I'm seeing in our parish an uptick in the numbers of people that are coming to church, Sunday Mass and stuff like that. I don't know if there's any connection whatsoever, but I certainly feel like we're making progress. Thank you very much. I appreciate you taking the time because, uh, you know, I know you're busy so at the end of my interviews, I always ask my guests to leave a little message of hope for the listener, just something nice. What could you say to anyone that might be out there listening now? God is love. That's all he is, just love. And none of us are perfect, but we, we get to live with God and be with God by being with other people. So if you're out there and you're by yourself and you're feeling alone or excluded, Go to your local church, whatever your faith is, get involved. Get involved in a little group, a little community thing, a prayer group. Don't worry about whether or not you believe enough. All of us are invited to participate, regardless of whether or not we are buying in to this message. Give it a shot. Give it a try. And um, you won't be disappointed.
If you like your worldview, if you think it's swell, if you've got some questions, ask me and I'll tell. All you've got to do is ask. All you've got to do is ask.